Hello, and welcome to the Andwise Podcast. We are delighted to have you here spending some time with us. Andwise is a technology platform that aims to empower medical students, trainees, and early career physicians navigate the complex financial journey that we all find ourselves on as we aim to help others. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Hello, welcome to the Andwise podcast today. I'm so happy to have Dr. Vlad Matei with me. He's one of the medical advisory board members. He's a vitreoretinal surgeon, and I'll let him introduce himself since I can never do our guests justices about their bio. Hey, Vlad, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Brune, for having me. So I'm Vlad Matei. Um, I'm an ophthalmologist, a retina specialist, also known as a vitreoretinal surgeon, and I live in the Denver area. Yeah, really appreciate you making time. The whole purpose of Andwise's podcast is to give docs that may be further back in their career than us some insight into how our journey went so far. A lot of times we're so focused on becoming doctor, the best doctors we can be, and the mentors we're surrounded by are in our immediate vicinity. We don't really hear from docs from further out from the country. So you trained at the Southwestern, from what I see. And then yes. now you're in Denver, Colorado, and you stayed at D Southwestern for a long time, right? For many years of your training? Yes, that's right. I did my medical school and my residency and fellowship there. When you were done with residency and you were looking at jobs, do you remember the types of things that you were interested in? Were you just looking to go to the best institution you could that would afford you like opportunities to build your practice? Or did you have family reasons for moving to Colorado? Or in some cases, I've heard people seeking out states and cities where the cost of living might be more manageable. Do you remember what you were looking at when you were looking for an attending job? Yes, for most medical students and residents going through training, the typical teaching is to decide whether they want to do an academic job or a private practice job after they've finished training. But as with other things in life, the situation is more complicated if you have a family. So for me, moving to Colorado was informed also by my family situation. I have a wife and at that time I also had my first of three kids and my wife had, is also a physician. She had done her training in Utah. We both wanted to be in a place that had more outdoor activities so we could offer those to our kids. And I also had my mother in Colorado. I wanted to be closer to her as well. And my wife actually got a really good job even before I did. Um, so all those factors played into me going to Colorado from Texas. Yeah, that's really important. I have three kids now. I'm in my 40s and in my 20s and 30s. I never imagined I would live in South Jersey, but now that I do, both my wife's family and my parents live close by. And it's just very useful to have grandparents close by and for kids to grow up around their cousins. Like I never had that. Like my cousins were in a different country from where I grew up. But yeah, sometimes it's a real blessing to have extra hands around. Yes, um, absolutely. And do you remember when you were a trainee, was there any sort of lectures or any sort of mentorship around financial wellness? For instance, like I remember when I was a medical student, like maybe fourth year of medical school, the only real teaching we had was from the student financial aid office for those of us that had student loans and they went over the repayment options and stuff. But beyond that, I don't remember too much else. 
my residency, I was at New York University in Manhattan. So there were a couple of talks from sort of disability insurance salesmen and things like that, but not too many. Do you remember anything from training? My experience is pretty similar. So when I was a medical student, I don't believe I had any lectures on finance, certainly none that I can recall. And it was not a big chunk of our curriculum. I do recall as a first year resident, as an intern, we did have a presentation from the hospital's HR department on the different kinds of retirement plans, but my peers and I really didn't know what that was all about. We hadn't really studied any finance at that point. And then like you, I also did have some presentations from disability insurance salesmen. Yeah. And then I'm jumping around topics a little bit. I apologize. But then when one goes to signing their first job contract after you're a resident, I don't think anyone talked to me about that either. And I'm a hospitalist. I'm in a non-surgical field. So the way we're compensated, it's most places, it's just a straight salary and perhaps like a quality based fixed bonus amount. We're limited. We can't increase our in income too much based on number of procedures and operations because we don't do any. But I remember not having any awareness about what these actual contracts, the specifics. And I think I Googled a couple of things, looked at some examples, and then just learned about a geographic non-compete. I was like, okay, that's important. And other things that were totally not on my radar, like I had no idea who was going to cover the malpractice insurance it's called tail coverage if you have a claims-based policy or whether I got a really good policy, occurrence-based, that wasn't even on my radar at all. And probably 10 other things. And I didn't get a lawyer to review the contract either. Do you remember what you did for your first job out of residency? Yes. So I did get a lawyer. I think it's helpful to find a lawyer who has expertise in your specialty because even though physicians can have similar contracts across specialties, um, each field is a little bit different in terms of things like salary, bonus structure, other parts of the compensation package. And for example, a surgical field may have different stipulations than a medical field. So I did find a lawyer uh, who had a lot of experience in ophthalmology. And I also asked some of my colleagues who had been ahead of me in training, who had already gone through their first contracts and found their first jobs to get some input on what are some of the things to look out for? What are some of the general guidelines and what's appropriate in these contracts? I basically gave a draft of my contract to the lawyer to review, and he pointed out some things that could have been changed, and some things were changed during the negotiation stage. But then that's when the other factors, the personal factors come into play as well, like family and location. For example, if you really want to go to a particular location, you may not be able to realistically ask for all of those things that the lawyer suggests that you ask for during negotiations, especially if it's a very desirable location and there's lots of competition out there. Yeah. Yeah. As physicians, we're in this mold of taking a very lengthy education process, standardized tests, jumping through a whole bunch of hoops with the main goal of we want to help patients. And when we come out into the workforce, it's a little bit awkward trying to figure out the whole landscape of negotiating also, because I don't think anyone's taught us that. So some docs I've encountered are incredibly shy about it, and they just never negotiate anything. And when I was the hospitalist medical director, I got to see people. I didn't have any input into how much people were paid, but I saw there was 
like slight variations in people's salary, even though they were doing the same amount of work. And it must have been because they asked the higher ups and you don't get anything that you don't ask for. Money, money is such a taboo subject that it's awkward also asking colleagues sometimes, unless you have a close friend or family member or where did you find like people were open with you or not, not really? Did you have to seek out sort of the benchmarks of how much a retinal surgeon should be paid on like job databases or salary like websites? Do you remember how you went about like determining that? Yes. Some lawyers, including the one that I use actually keep track of all their clients numbers. So the lawyer that I had actually had a, a spreadsheet, which basically tracked the salaries of all of his clients had gone to a particular region. So he had it broken down by state and by city. So that was actually pretty good because you don't need to have a hundred different people per city. If having just a dozen as part of your sample size should be enough to get an idea of the ballpark because it's not going to be huge variation. That being said, there is some variation, which is why I didn't use those databases like the MGMA database, because those take an average for that specialty. But within that specialty, you have people who go into academics, you have those who start their own practice, you have those who go into high volume, low volume practices, big cities, rural areas. And so those factors can cause big swings and a wider range of the salary. Yep. And then the practice you're a part of right now, I apologize. I didn't look up. Are you employed by that practice? Did you start it yourself? No. So I'm in a large group practice and I'm employed. I'm currently in the employed stage. A lot of practices do have the associate or employed position track. And then after some number of years, you can become a partner where you have some part ownership in the practice. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. I think that's another thing that like none of us learn about is very complicated. And there's like dozens of models about what ownership means, quote unquote, like even down the line, if they offer it to you, like, for instance, I have a, a friend that's a hematologist oncologist in like the Virginia DC area. And he was telling me basically like when they offered him some sort of partnership, they withdrew a certain amount of money from his paycheck every month for a period of three to four years. And then at the end of that four years, then he had a certain percentage of ownership. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of that model, but that's that sounds great because it, that requires you not to go to the bank and get some sort of big loan to buy into a partnership. But there's just so many different models that you don't hear about. Yes, that's right. And I think at least in my field, the trend is going more towards what you described where when you are in the partnership stage, your buy-in is allocated over several years of salary deductions or at least revenue deductions because you're no longer on a salary at that point. And the alternative, which is more of an older style, is to just pay a very large flat fee up front and instantly assume all the privileges of your partnership. The problem is you have to take a loan. And the other problem is we can't really create the future. So if something happens, during that partnership stage, as you're getting vested into the practice, then you know, you're stuck with that big loan that you made. And I think it's more complicated. So I would prefer if I were starting out and looking for a job, I would prefer to be able to pay my partnership dues and aliquots and installments, as you described. Yeah. Jumping back a couple of years to like medical school, I'm always interested, like how people pick specialties 
I think some people just have such clear vision from day one about what they want to do and other people change their minds and flip-flop. I'm one of those people. I thought I wanted to be a surgical oncologist and then I actually matched into ophthalmology. I did a prelim year, then I did my entire PGY2 optho year and then I changed into internal medicine again. Did you always know you wanted to do ophthalmology or how did that go for you in medical school? No, I had a, a similar path that was a, a little less traditional. I did not know really until my third year, I had an idea. I've always enjoyed problem solving and my favorite part of medicine is the diagnostic process. So I gravitated towards internal medicine. And in fact, I matched into internal medicine. And right before I started my PGY1 uh, year, I guess I took an ophthalmology rotation. It was my last rotation of medical school. And it turns out that I really loved it. I loved how in ophthalmology, you're much closer to the anatomy. You determine most of your findings and diagnoses based on the physical exam. You also have a lot of imaging to support that. So I went towards that and I was already committed to my first year of internal medicine uh, and in ophthalmology, you have to have a prelim year. So you have to match a year before. Because my PGY2 uh, would have been my prelim year, uh, if I would have applied right away, I decided to just go ahead and delay it by a year and finish the whole internal medicine residency, which I think was a good experience. Yeah, it's, that's awesome that you did that. It's such a competitive residency that unfortunately, a lot of people that are interested, if they try to match into it at a later stage, they're not successful. There's just so many applicants for so few spots. When I was a third year, I actually just posted about LinkedIn on this because I found my old step one score and it was not like some of the most competitive students. So I actually took a year and went to the NIH to do research in an ophthalmology lab. I think that tremendously helped my application, even despite all of these surgical and other specialties being very competitive in the United States. I think we're incredibly lucky in the country in that even applicants that aren't successful the first time around or second time around, they still have some shot if they have the means to keep going through that application process that they might be successful just because it's such a large country with so many opportunities versus some other smaller places. Like I have friends in Australia. I had one of my high school friends wait eight years for an orthopedic spot to open up because the population is only 20 something million people and they just don't have the training spaces. Yeah. Yeah, that's, we are fortunate in that way in the U.S. And also nowadays with all the technology available and more open-mindedness in terms of what patients, what companies want, I think in many specialties, you have more freedom to customize your career. One question I like to ask everyone is once you became an attending, like with respect to managing your personal finances and things like that, are you a do-it-yourself person? Did you hire someone like a financial advisor? What did you end up doing? So far, I'm a do-it-yourself kind of person. Like many other physicians, I look to the White Coat Investor website and forums. They have a very good reading list. And I went off some of the books on that list, which are very helpful, including the White Coat Investor book itself. And I keep it very simple, just like what most people say, to use broad-based index funds. Like I actually have a free fund portfolio myself. We do some real estate as well. But that's another situation in life where family and interests come into play. Anything you do outside of passive investing is in itself a side gig or a business. So if you choose to do real estate, even if you have a property manager, it still requires time to oversee 
what the manager is doing, make sure that all the forms uh, are being filled out and the rents are coming in. So it is still a business. And if you have a passion for that, and many people do, then that could be very lucrative. But if you're just really trying to save for retirement and you want to enjoy your time with your family and you don't have a particular interest in real estate, then you have to think about it very seriously before you start trying to build your own portfolio. Um, now, of course, with real estate, there are some options like doing a, a real estate investment funds. So you, it's, it's, it's more passive in that way. But even then, it's not entirely passive because you have to do the research. Yes, I'm a, a DIY person right now, and I use mostly index funds because I'm really just trying to save for retirement and focus on my clinical career. Yeah. And when you, when you do it yourself and you're using like a three fund portfolio, do you find yourself, you have to look at it quarterly or yearly and then rebalance things? Like if one of those funds has done incredibly well and you want to bring the percentage back into line, or do you just, do you just let it go? Because the S&P 500 has been doing like amazing the past few months. I basically look at it every six months and I rebalance by just buying the next fund into the category, which has a deficit. I don't really mess around too much with selling what I already have, or I, honestly, I don't think too much about the tax efficiency either. I just keep it as simple as possible. I know that you could probably get some more gains by focusing on those details, but again, it just comes down to interest and time. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. Like the best approach is time in the market, be consistent about it. And the less emotional you are as well, because there was a big pullback a couple of months ago and it recovered and then went beyond that pullback. So if you're looking at things on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis, you're likely to be reactionary and make mistakes as well. Listen, this has been great. I know you have to get to clinic. A lot of the sort of early career, mid-career docs I talk to have something that they'd wish they had done differently. Or one of our medical advisory board members talks about he wish he had never bought whole life insurance. I talk about not investing in things I didn't understand, like crypto. Is there anything that comes to mind that you wish you'd learned about earlier or that had come across your radar? Or, and if, if the answer is no, that's okay as well. Yes. One thing from a professional standpoint, which I wish I would have done differently, it all ended up working out for me, but I wish I would have thought about my first job more carefully because the teaching that I went through was that most physicians change jobs anyway. So your first job is not really the big of a deal. You'll just get something going and then you can just always switch jobs later if it's not working out. But especially if you have another, like a working spouse or other family ties, it can be pretty difficult to switch, keep switching jobs and locations. And so my advice is to try to treat your first job when you're looking for it as if hypothetically it were to be your only and your final job. Uh, and to really take that very seriously, don't just go for something that's temporary. Really take that as your final job and just imagine what that would be like. And if you don't think that you could stay at that job long-term if you really had to, then maybe it's not a good fit for you. Yeah, that's awesome advice. Hey, thank you so much. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me.